welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. Today we're going to talk about Bohemia, a kingdom in Eastern Europe that existed in the Middle Ages and early Renaissance. Located where the Czech Republic is today, Bohemia would reach the height of her influence in the middle of the 1300s. At this time, Bohemia is the largest country in the Holy Roman Empire, the only one to be ruled by a king instead of a duke, bishop, prince, or other lesser noble. For example, during most of the Holy Roman Empire's period, it would be ruled by the leaders of Austria, who were archdukes. But this time, for a brief period, the Holy Roman Empire is actually ruled by a king, the king of Bohemia, a guy named Charles IV. He has very loose authority outside of Bohemia. After all, the Holy Roman Empire is a collection of small states, and the emperor is really just the arbiter of last resort in Central Europe, but it's still an important position. Unfortunately, Charles IV, as great a ruler as he is, will not leave a competent heir. We'll start out today's episode with a short quote, and those of you who know where it's from might get a little chuckle out of it, and well, we'll talk about it in a second. Quote, Charles IV, King of Bohemia and Holy Roman Emperor, had a long and successful reign. The empire he ruled from Prague expanded, and his subjects lived in peace and prosperity. When he died, the whole empire mourned. More than 7,000 people accompanied him on his last procession. The heir to the throne of the flourishing empire was Charles's son, Wenceslas IV, whose father had prepared him for this moment all of his life. But Wenceslas did not take after his father. He neglected affairs of state for more frivolous pursuits. He even failed to turn up for his own coronation as emperor, which did little to endear him to the pope. Wenceslas the idol did not impress the imperial nobility either. His difficulties mounted until the nobles, exasperated by the inaction of their ruler, turned for help to his half-brother, King Sigismund of Hungary. Sigismund decided on a radical solution. He kidnapped the king to force him to abdicate, then took advantage of the ensuing disorder to gain greater power for himself. He invaded Bohemia with a massive army and began pillaging the territories of the king's allies. Unquote. If you are a fan of historical video games, you may recognize that as the introduction to Kingdom Come Deliverance, which is, by the way, truly a masterpiece of historical and historically accurate game development. Uh, but this same introduction is also the introduction to today's story. Because during this time of weak leadership, a young man named Jan Hus is growing up in the Bohemian hinterland. These are dark times for many in Bohemia. Not only is there the constant threat of war, at least low-level fighting, but there's a crisis in the Catholic Church. 
Now, this is a deeply religious time and place. For centuries, these people have taken solace in their religion, with priests fulfilling many important functions like weddings, funerals, and multiple feast days throughout the year for the community, and blessings for just about everything. But throughout Europe, many priests and bishops especially have started to abuse their positions. They have started charging fees for their services. And to many of the people, it seems as if the rich can buy their way into heaven, no matter what they do on earth, while the poor have to turn over every last penny just to meet their basic religious obligations. This long-standing crisis would come to a head in the 1500s, when the printing press allowed Martin Luther to spread the Protestant Reformation throughout Europe. But in Bohemia, the Christian world would get their first glimpse of what a Reformation might look like. A sneak preview, if you like. They would get that glimpse thanks to this preacher named Jan Hus, who would change Christianity forever. And before we go any further on our journey, let me just say that I am almost certainly going to get some things wrong today. I have taken exactly one theology class, the base level requirement at Notre Dame, and that is not where my expertise lies. But a lot of the story of Jan Hus is tied up with theology. I can vouch for my historical facts, but if I stumble over some of the nuances of medieval Christian theology, I hope you'll forgive me. And feel free to correct me at dantollerpodcast at gmail.com. Anyway, Jan Hus does not have his beginnings the way you would expect for a great preacher of this age. He doesn't grow up in a wealthy or privileged household. Far from it. Uh, Jan Hus is born a peasant's son, and his family is so poor that we don't even know when exactly he is born. Estimates range from 1369 to 1375. My copy of the letters of Jan Hus says 1369, as does Oscar Kuhn's book Jan Hus the Witness, both of which I have used as major sources for this episode. So, well, we can't be sure. He's, he's born between 1369 and 1375, probably towards the earlier part of that period. Sometime around the age of 10, Hus is sent to live in a monastery. And we don't know why. It's possible that his father may have died, and his mother, being a single mother, in the medieval era, did not have the resources to support him. It's also possible that he had asked to go there, who is, after all, known from a very early age for being unusually religious, fervently so, in a time and a place, like I said, where people were exceptionally religious. And this life in the monastery gives Hus opportunities 
that most people of his station would never have access to. Right, he learns to read and write, which is a rare opportunity in this time. Reading and writing is almost entirely reserved for the clergy and for uh, nobility and people who have to conduct affairs of state and some people in the merchant classes in this time in Europe, in this area, can read. But it's not a very common skill by and large, and virtually any peasant you met is going to be entirely illiterate. And here Jan Hus is, a peasant's son, getting to live in this monastery and learning to read and write. Now, the next several years are murky. We're not quite sure what exactly happens in the monastery, but at some point, Janhus must have demonstrated that he had some skill because uh, he is sent to Prague with a recommendation to enroll in the University of Prague there. And in 1393, he earns his Bachelor of Arts, and then he earns a Bachelor of Theology in 1394 and a Master of Arts in 1396. After that run of three degrees, in 1398, Jan Hus begins teaching at the university. And at some point right around that time, he is also ordained a priest. Hus isn't just a teacher. He is also continuing his studies and his philosophical research, and he is attracted to the teachings of a philosopher named John Wycliffe. This is an English thinker who had died not too long previously, in 1384, so about 14, 15 years before who starts studying him at this point. And Wycliffe had some serious issues with the Catholic Church. And we'll talk about those in a minute because they do become relevant. But what Hus first found himself attracted to in Wycliffe was not his religious teachings, but his philosophy. And his philosophy is called realism. Now, this gets confusing, and I don't want to go too far down the philosophical rabbit hole here, but I should explain that Christian realism in the Middle Ages is actually probably closest to what we would call idealism today. Right? Wycliffe believes that concepts like beauty and goodness exist in and of themselves outside of physical reality. If you are familiar with Plato and his idea of the forms, right? perfect ideals that are never achieved in the real world, but nonetheless exist out there in the ether somewhere, Wycliffe believes this as well, and he describes these perfect attributes as aspects of the divine. At the time, this runs counter to most of European Christian philosophy. Most philosophers of the time fall into what is called the nominalist school, and confusingly, we would call these people materialists today, or we might even have to make up a new term to be more accurate, maybe Christian materialists. 
The nominalists believe that the world exists as it is. There is no ethereal realm out there with forms. If there are anything analogous to idealized forms, they exist only as concepts in the mind of God or concepts in the minds of people. And nominalism forms the basis, at least the intellectual origin, for much of modern secular philosophy as well as for the Protestant Reformation. But in the late 1390s, Realism, this idea of concepts that exist as literal things, well, that is considered radical. But for Jan Hus, it's the good kind of radical. In 1401, Jan Hus is elected dean of the philosophical faculty at the University of Prague. A year later, in 1402, Hus gets another position. He becomes the regular preacher at Bethlehem Chapel. This is a progressive Prague church where the Bible is read in Bohemian instead of Latin, and where the sermons are also in Bohemian. And there, Hus quickly gains a following. Within a year, Queen Sophie of Bohemia is attending his masses, listening to his sermons, and she makes him her personal confessor. Just as in the 1500s, Martin Luther would use the printing press to spread his teachings. Jan Hus would use this cosmopolitan, urban, hip chapel where he gets to preach at. That is going to be how he gets his ideas out from the university and into the public sphere. And around this time, Hus begins taking on some of the other aspects of John Wycliffe, some of his issues with the Catholic Church. And most importantly of these is a strong criticism of the Catholic clergy. We already talked about how priests and bishops would charge exorbitant fees for their services, even to the poor. Who calls this out at every level, from the Pope who permits it, to the bishops who are the worst offenders, to everyday priests. And he particularly criticizes the sale of indulgences. Now again, this is a relatively complicated subject, but an indulgence is an idea in Christian tradition where someone can perform a certain act and gain forgiveness for all of their sins. A good example of this would be Uh, the official proclamations of the Crusades. We talked about this in our episode on the First Crusade. The Pope says that whoever goes on this crusade to Jerusalem will achieve forgiveness for all of their sins, whatever they may have been, however bad they may have been. And by this time... In the early 1400s, many bishops have taken to the practice of simply selling indulgences. In other words, if you are rich enough, you can do whatever you want and just keep buying forgiveness for all your sins. Just 
put a little money in the pocket of your local bishop, the thinking goes, and you too will have eternal salvation. Clearly, this is not in keeping with how most people would understand the intention of an indulgence, of a holy act of some kind. But this is what it has come to mean. Jan Hus does not limit himself to this. He also calls out many priests for their worldly ways. At this time, it's normal for priests and bishops to live with their mistresses. They take vows of celibacy, and they don't get married, but they still live openly with their mistresses. And as a matter of fact, even a few popes have promoted their own bastard sons to become powerful cardinals in the church. And to the average person in these times, who again is very pious and is constantly hearing pious teachings from their clergy, seeing this happen is... Uh, it shakes their confidence in their religion. And oddly enough, while Hus's realist philosophy is controversial, his take on the clergy is actually not. There is already a reform movement in the Catholic Church, and many nobles and you know, true believer bishops, and even King Wenceslas himself, are sympathetic to the movement. So, Far from making him a target for the Catholic authorities, these teachings are pretty well accepted within the mainstream in this time and place. Like Martin Luther a century later, Hus would become a target not because of his stance on the clergy, but because of his belief that the Pope is not the divinely appointed head of the Christian Church. This is something John Wycliffe had taught near the end of his life. But it's not something... Hus is teaching in public at this time. He hasn't gotten in trouble for it yet. Incidentally, as a side note, this same year, 1402, is the same year that King Wenceslas is kidnapped by his brother Sigismund, the King of Hungary, and forced to give up his claims as Holy Roman Emperor. He will escape from captivity and return a year later in 1403 as merely the King of Bohemia. But Sigismund doesn't get to be Holy Roman Emperor either, at least not yet. There is another leader, Rupert of the Palatinate, who is declared King of Germany instead. See, the actual title of Holy Roman Emperor can only be conferred by the Pope, and there are two claimants right now to the papacy, and... It is controversial in the empire over which one is legitimate, so rather than being crowned by one of the popes and angering half of his empire, Rupert is instead crowned by a local German bishop simply as the king of Germany. But that title really just means Holy Roman Emperor at this time. It's a stand-in title for the same old job. And... If you're wondering why there are two popes at this time, well, that's another issue, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But at any rate, after 
Jan Hus has started preaching against the clergy and preaching some of John Wycliffe's teachings. And after this year of civil unrest in Bohemia, an event occurs called the Miracle of Wilsnack. See, during the civil disorder of 1402, when Wenceslas is being kidnapped, a tomb is destroyed in a church in the town of Wilsnack. And inside this destroyed tomb, some monks have allegedly found some consecrated hosts, some Eucharistic bread, uh, which these hosts are bleeding, according to the story. It's a miracle. And pilgrims have started coming in from all over Europe to see this new miracle. And of all people to be suspicious, it is actually the Bohemian archbishop, a man named Zbinek, who calls for an investigation. And as one of the three investigators into this supposed miracle, he appoints Jan Hus. And... Hus quickly debunks a series of supposed miracles related to these supposed bleeding Eucharistic hosts. Uh, to name just a few of them, uh, in one case, uh, there is a pair of young women who have supposedly been cured of blindness, and well, as it turns out, they've never been blind at all, just a little bit nearsighted, which they still are. And another story, a young man with a deformed hand is loudly insisting to one of the monks that he was never cured, even as another monk is outside the church telling a bunch of pilgrims about this young man's cured hand. It looks as if these monks experienced uh, some tragedy. Their church has been sacked by some mercenaries during the civil disorder, and so they have faked this miracle to attract a bunch of pilgrims and make some money. And who exposes this? At the request of the uh, Bishop of Prague, might I add, but many clergy throughout the land turn against Jan Hus at this point. See, it's one thing to preach against the clergy, but debunking miracles, well, that could reduce people's faith in relics and pilgrimage sites. And in these religious times, places like the tombs of saints and other important figures, well, those are destinations. And religious pilgrims are good for trade, they're good for business, they're an important source of income for many of these clergymen, and this is what initially turns many of his fellow Bohemian priests against Hus. And there is another unfortunate aspect of this. Because the debunked miracles involved consecrated Eucharistic hosts, this is where we go down a really deep theological rabbit hole, but we've got to go there, because otherwise what happens to Jan Hus next doesn't make any sense. We have to understand that while these are 
obscure or minor theological matters to many modern people. To the most religious of people, they are very, very important. And in these medieval times, theological questions of this nature are the most important thing. Now, traditional Catholic teaching on the nature of the Eucharist, the bread and wine shared during the Catholic Mass, is that at a certain point, when the priest says a certain set of words, the bread and wine cease to actually be bread and wine. Somehow they become literally the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Not symbolically, literally. And they only look like bread and wine to people after that. On the other hand, John Wycliffe had taught the doctrine of impanation. Now, I had trouble finding this and understanding it in Wycliffe's writings even, so I went to the Catholic Encyclopedia to find some sort of official take on it, and according to the Catholic Encyclopedia, impanation means, quote, a heretical doctrine according to which Christ is in the Eucharist through his human body substantially united with the substances of bread and wine, and thus is really present as God made bread. Deus panis factus. Unquote. So, under official Catholic teaching, bread becomes God, but retains the appearance of bread. And under Wycliffe's teaching, God becomes bread, but retains his divine essence. To modern people, again, this really seems kind of like hair-splitting, but people have been burned at the stake for this kind of thing. Before we go further, we should also point out that Hus specifically defended traditional Catholic doctrine on this issue and condemned Wycliffe's take, but because... Who has preached so much of Wycliffe's other material, he will be seen as guilty by association. And this is where nationalism, at the theme of this season of the show, this is where nationalism comes into our story, but it becomes deeply entwined with religion, which is why we have to keep going back to the theological well. See, there are not one, but two popes right now, as I mentioned. One, Gregory Twelfth, rules from Rome, while the other, Benedict Thirteenth, rules from Avignon, which is a papal enclave in France. In a hierarchical religion with one all-powerful head, this is a big problem. It also causes different European monarchs to line up on different sides. And it's not just a religious problem, it becomes a political problem. For example, Sigismund, the king of Hungary and Wenceslas's brother, well, he is a supporter of Gregory Twelfth, the Roman pope. And he has ambitions still of becoming the Holy Roman Emperor. But meanwhile, the German states 
also mostly support Gregory Twelfth. So you would think that anybody who wants to become Holy Roman Emperor eventually would at least tacitly sit behind Gregory Twelfth. But then again, look at Rupert. Rupert did not go to Rome to be crowned. He was content with being the king of Germany. And Wenceslas, still ambitious, right? Wenceslas, our bohemian king, uh, he still thinks he can outmaneuver both his brother and Rupert. So he declares neutrality in the matter of the two popes. He's not going to take a stance. And while some leaders might be able to get away with this, most leaders are not playing host to a preacher as controversial as Jan Hus. In the year 1408, Gregory Twelfth, this Roman pope, declares the teachings of John Wycliffe to be heretical, and he sends a messenger ordering that his works be burned. Bishop Zbynek in Prague orders the university to hand over all of Wycliffe's writings, not necessarily to be burned immediately, but for review, and Jan Hus submits to this demand. What he does not do is submit to the bishop's demand to stop preaching. Wenceslas gets wind of this interference by the bishop in university affairs, and he knows that it's on behalf of Gregory Twelfth. In other words, he knows that this bishop Zbynek is acting on behalf of one of the two popes when the official national policy is neutrality. While Wenceslas can't do much about Bishop Zbynek at this time, what he can do is restructure the way the university makes decisions to retain more local control. He does this in January of 1409. Now, at the time, there are four national delegations to the university, and each one gets a single vote on policy. The first nation is Bohemia. The other three are the so-called German nations of Saxony, Bavaria, and Poland. If you're wondering why Poland is called a German nation, well, at this time, Poland's borders are different and almost all the population is actually German. And all three of these German lands keep voting to support Gregory Twelfth and Bishop Zbinek, and they keep voting against any policies favorable to Jan Hus or to more importantly, Wenceslas. So Wenceslas changes the rules so that instead of all four nations each getting a single vote, the Bohemian nation gets three votes and the three German nations share a single vote. And he has completely reversed the situation and said, no, this, this is a Bohemian university. You Germans don't get to dictate to us which pope we are going to support. In protest of this, most of the German faculty leave and they found a new university at Leipzig. And this policy of 
bohemianification, if that's a word, uh, this policy will ultimately backfire on the University of Prague. Uh, formerly the equal of Oxford and the University of Paris, it soon becomes nothing more than a minor national university. But for now, as of January 1409, it is still an important institution, and Jan Hus is effectively in control. Now, the German king, Rupert, is sensitive to the dangers of this two-pope situation, and he calls a church council to try and appoint a new single pope behind which everybody can unite. And to do this, he chooses a group of cardinals, uh, roughly half of whom are appointed by Gregory and roughly half of whom have been appointed by Benedict, and therefore there's not going to be any bias towards either side, right? That's the theory. And this council announces the appointment of another pope, Alexander V. However, this doesn't just make the other two popes go away. Gregory and Benedict remain active in Rome and Avignon, respectively, and as a matter of fact, modern Catholic tradition actually views Gregory as the legitimate pope at this time. But most Catholic leaders in Europe at this time are really sick of the whole two-pope situation, and they align behind Alexander, the German pope. And Bishop Zbinek of Prague writes to Alexander, complaining about Jan Hus and his preaching of John Wycliffe's teaching. Alexander responds with a papal bull, a formal order, demanding that Hus turn in all of Wycliffe's writings and cease preaching at Bethlehem Chapel. The next few months are pivotal and are retold by American historian Oscar Coons in his book, John Hus, The Witness. He says, quote, this bull at once relighted the slumbering fires of contest. Hus accused the archbishop of slandering Bohemia and appealed to the pope, but in vain. He was cited to Rome to give account of himself and his teaching before the papal see. Nor did the death of Alexander, a short time after this, affect the condition of affairs, for the policy of uncompromising hostility to Hus was continued by his successor, John XXIII. In Prague itself, the Synod, dominated by the anti-Hus party, declared on June 16, 1410, Wycliffe's books to be heretical, and ordered all copies in Prague to be gathered up and publicly burned. In spite of the fact that the vast majority of the members of the university were followers of Hus, they were obedient for the most part to this decree, and handed in the copies of Wycliffe they possessed. Still more radical, however, was the decree forbidding all preaching in private chapels. This order struck Hus in his most vulnerable spot. Hitherto, he had not been openly disobedient to the highest ecclesiastical authorities, and in all questions discussed he had made an appeal directly to the Pope, as an obedient and respectful son of the Church. If, however, he should now remain obedient and give up his preaching at Bethlehem Chapel, he would be completely reduced to silence. This he could not conscientiously do, 
for it seemed to him that his duty to God was greater than that to any man, even the Pope himself. From now on, Hus was placed in a position of contumacy, not merely against the local archbishop, but against the Church of Rome itself. On June 25, 1410, he gathered his friends in the Bethlehem Chapel, had a true account of the whole matter drawn up by a public notary, and in the name of the university and practically all Bohemia, nobles, cities, and towns sent a petition to John XXIII, begging him to enjoin the archbishop from burning Wycliffe's books and from prohibiting preaching in the private chapels. During all this time, however, he never for a day ceased to preach. In a similar manner, the whole university, doctors, masters, and students, except a few who supported the archbishop, begged the king not to allow the burning of Wycliffe's books. Whereupon, the king ordered Zbinek to suspend action until he, the king, should examine the question thoroughly. In spite of Hus's appeal to the pope and the king's order, Zbinek, weary of the delay, proceeded to carry out the decree of the synod. On July 16th, he gathered the prelates and clergy together, surrounded by armed men, had the books of Wycliffe piled up in the midst, and amidst the singing of the Te Deum Laudamus had them set on fire. At the same time, the bells of all the churches in Prague announced to the whole people what had been done. Two days after, July 18th, he pronounced the ban of the church over Hus and all his friends. All these events produced the greatest commotion, not only among the students, but the great body of the people as well. The whole city was split into two hostile factions, who not only mutually insulted each other by means of songs and parodies, but soon came to acts of violence. At one time, the archbishop himself was forced to retire from the cathedral while celebrating Mass. At another time, when a priest attempted to proclaim from his pulpit the ban over Hus, six men with drawn swords attacked and nearly killed him. The king made a vain attempt to allay the storm thus aroused. On the one hand, he forbade on pain of death the singing of satirical songs, and on the other, he ordered the archbishop to pay the owners of the books he had burnt. And when the latter refused to obey, Wenceslas gave orders to stop the payment of the salary of all those connected with the burning of the books. Thus, affairs stood for some time in a state of suspense. Hus and his followers were hopeful of final victory. Confident as they were in the support of the nobility, magistrates, the common people, and even the king and queen, Hus continued to preach at Bethlehem Chapel, which was filled by enormous crowds. He became more and more bold and carried the audience with him. Once, when he spoke of having appealed to the Pope, he asked his hearers, Will you stand by me? And the whole vast congregation cried out, Yes, we will stand by you. They soon found, however, that nothing was to be hoped for from the Pope. On August 25, 1410, he returned the appeal of Hus, confirmed the bull of his predecessor Alexander V, requested the archbishop to continue the measures already taken, and ordered Hus within a certain time to appear at the papal court, there to give account of himself. The publication of this decree resulted in new disorders. The king himself, who had no desire to support the hierarchy by force and was favorably inclined to Hus, wrote to the pope, demanding, among other things, that the accusation against Hus be withdrawn and that Bethlehem Chapel be restored to its rights. 
This too was in vain, for on March 15, 1411, the ban against Hus was proclaimed in all the churches of Prague except two, the priests of which refused to read it. As this excommunication had no effect, the archbishop laid the whole city of Prague under interdict. Unquote. Now, I should just briefly explain here what interdict is. Basically, uh, Hus has been condemned by the Catholic Church, and he has been uh, excommunicated, which means he is no longer considered a member of the Church until he goes and does what the Pope has ordered and goes and you know, reports to Rome. And uh, interdict is just a more extreme version. Essentially, the entire city of Prague is now to be denied the services of the Catholic Church. There will be no weddings, no funerals, no religious services, nothing like that. Officially. The idea, again, in these very religious times where these religious rituals and ceremonies are so important to people, uh, placing a city under interdict sort of takes away one of their major sources of comfort in this world. It's meant to get people to turn against Hus. Well, let's see how that turns out. Oscar Kunz continues, quote, The extraordinary power and influence of Hus was never more apparent than at this crisis. Although the whole weight of ecclesiastical censure, the malediction of the Pope himself, the vice-regent of God on earth, had been directed against him, it did not shake the loyalty of his friends. Things remained much as before. Ban and interdict were ignored. In many of the churches, services went on as usual, and Hus continued his sermons at Bethlehem. Thus, the cleft between the people and the clergy grew wider and wider and the only way of bringing about a reconciliation was for both parties to show something of a spirit of compromise. A plan was formed by the king, by means of which both Hus and Zbinek should promise to abide by the decision of a committee of arbitrators appointed by the king. On July 6th, the report of the committee was made public. Among other things, it recommended that the whole matter under discussion should be taken out of the hands of the Pope and settled in Bohemia itself, that the Archbishop be requested to sign a document addressed to the Pope, to the effect that in the course of his investigations he had not found either in Bohemia or Moravia any heresy, that he had come to a complete understanding with Hus in the university through the mediation of the king, and that he therefore requested John XXIII to recall the censure on Hus and especially the command to appear before the Roman Curia. On the other side, Hus was to agree to take certain similar steps towards bringing an end to the contest between them. It seemed for a time as if finally a reconciliation, or at least a modus vivendi, was at hand. At the last moment, however, the archbishop failed them. He left Prague secretly, sending word to the king that since he could not obtain an impartial hearing in Bohemia, he had gone to Wenceslas's brother, Sigismund of Hungary. This journey was fatal to him. He fell sick not long after he had crossed the frontiers of Moravia and died at Pressburg, September 28, 1411. His body was brought back to Prague and buried amid general expressions of sorrow. 
for even his enemies had never denied him the credit of a good life and a well-meaning heart, whose himself had never concealed his respect for his character. Unquote. Zbinnik's successor as the Archbishop of Prague, a man named Albic, is an elderly man who does not want any fights. Unlike Zbinnik, he can probably be relied on to stand by quietly while John Hus and his university do their thing. And had history not continued to intervene, Jan Hus might have settled down to a quiet life in academia at this point. But fake Pope Alexander's successor, John XXIII, the same successor who refused to compromise with Hus, well, he calls for a crusade against Ladislaus, the king of Naples. Ladislaus of Naples is the royal protector of Gregory Twelfth, one of the two other popes. It's a war of one pope against another pope uh, using political proxies. John XXIII sends emissaries throughout Europe proclaiming this crusade. From a religious perspective, from Hus's perspective, one might say, there are a couple of problems with this. One, the fake pope is calling for a war of Christians against other Christians, but he's also promising indulgences, right? Forgiveness of all your sins for anyone who participates. This is too much for Jan Hus to bear, and he begins preaching against this crusade. As a matter of fact, he goes even further. He says that no pope or bishop can command people to go to war, that Jesus himself was a pacifist, and that only worldly kings can command armies. This makes John XXIII very angry, and he doubles down. He sends a demand to Albic and to Wenceslas that John Hus and all of his teachings be suppressed. And Albic goes ahead and follows these orders in his churches that he runs, and when three young followers of John Hus openly protest in a church in Prague, they are tried and sentenced to death by the civil authorities. A mob forms. A pro-Hus mob. And Hus quiets them down. He leads them instead in a peaceful protest. And the court agrees to spare the young men. And at this, Hus orders his followers to disperse, and they do, and at that point those three young men are quietly taken by the court and beheaded anyway. Soon thereafter, several senior Germans in Prague take matters into their own hands. See, Prague is a, as I said, fairly cosmopolitan city at this time, and in addition to the majority Czech population, there are a number of Germans, particularly wealthy merchants, but there's a, a significant German enclave in the city, and the Germans, by and large, uh, favor the Pope, 
while the Czechs, by and large, favor Jan Hus. And several of the senior Germans in the city instigate a mob to attack Bethlehem Chapel while Hus is preaching. And a pro-Hus mob forms to defend the chapel, and it is only by quick thinking and eloquent words by leaders on both sides that uh, street fighting and violence doesn't break out right there. By now, King Wenceslas has had just about enough of all this trouble in his capital city, and in December of 1412, for the sake of civil order in Prague, Wenceslas asks Hus to leave the city voluntarily. He does, and he goes into the countryside. Out in the countryside, Jan Hus comes to feel that he has lost touch with his roots as a peasant. He realizes that Many rural priests barely speak Latin and can't read his scholarly philosophical works. So during the next couple of years, during his time in exile, he spends a lot of time writing in Czech. He also produces his greatest work during this time, in the year 1413, a book called De Ecclesia, which means On the Church, it's mostly a repackaging of John Wycliffe, but it is tailored for Hus's personal beliefs. For example, as I mentioned, Wycliffe preached some less-than-orthodox things about the Eucharist, and Hus does not uh, repeat those things in his book, but uh, he does uh, take a strong stand against the church hierarchy in general. He significantly argues that Scripture is the only legitimate source of Christian belief and that good Christians should ignore corrupt rulings by ecclesiastical officials. Among other arguments, Hus points out the apostle Judas Iscariot. Now, in the biblical story, Jesus chooses Judas to be one of his main followers, one of his apostles, and Judas betrays him. And who says, well, see, Judas was legitimately appointed, just as many bishops are, but he was also of the devil. He says the same can be true even of a pope. And this is fairly radical for the time. Meanwhile, political events have continued to move. German King Rupert dies, that fellow who was sort of the placeholder for the Holy Roman Emperor, if you will. And Sigismund, King of Hungary, convinces the Holy Roman Emperor's electors to name him King of the Romans. This is another stand-in title. Again, we still have multiple popes. Nobody's going to be crowned Holy Roman Emperor just yet, but Sigismund gets to be King of the Romans, which is basically the same thing. And in 1414, he uses that authority to call a church council. This is an event known to history as the Council of Constance. 
Now you recall the last time there was a church council was when King Rupert called one, and he had called one to deal with the issue of the two popes, and he only made it worse. He created a third. While the purpose of the Council of Constance is similar, it is primarily to address the situation with the three popes, also to address corruption in the church, and finally, to address the teachings of a certain bohemian preacher. Now, Sigismund asks Jan Hus to attend the council voluntarily. Hus knows that this could be hazardous to his health, but Sigismund promises Hus safe transport through Germany. This means that he promises that as long as Hus is outside of Bohemia, he will be able to travel safely and not have to worry about being taken prisoner or anything. But either through betrayal on his part or through miscommunication, what Sigismund does is he only gives Jan Hus, Jan Hus safe transport to the council, not back from it. If you think about it, that doesn't really mean much. Because all Hus's enemies have to do is wait until five minutes after the council is over and have him arrested. Or fake a bandit attack and have him unfortunately die in the backwoods of Germany or what have you. He can be dealt with. And now that he is in the hands of this German church council, Hus faces what is essentially a show trial for the crime of heresy, of teaching false beliefs. He is forced to answer dozens of absurd charges. In addition to needing to respond to some of the things he did say, he is charged with teaching a number of things he never taught. He is charged with teaching Wycliffe's views on the Eucharist. He is even charged with claiming to be the fourth person of the Holy Trinity, which would mean he is claiming to be God himself. But Hus is never allowed to answer any of the charges individually. His only option is to either repudiate all of his teachings or to stand openly as a heretic. While standing trial, Hus continues to correspond with priests and followers back in Bohemia, and many of his letters survive. During his defense, he even raises a point that will be later raised by Martin Luther to sort of prove the absurdity of some of the powers ascribed to the Pope. He says, well, there are souls suffering in purgatory right now, people who were not bad enough to be sent to hell, but not quite ready for heaven yet, so they get put in this place of suffering, and, well, the Pope has the authority to release those souls at any time. But he only does it sometimes, and when he does, he does it for money. Isn't that extortion? It is one of Hus's arguments. And the trial goes on for weeks, 
But ultimately, Jan Hus is convicted. What follows is a description of his last day, July 6, 1415, as described in the letters of Jan Hus, with introductions and explanatory notes. This part is written by Herman B. Workman and R. Martin Pope. They write, quote, At six o'clock the next morning, Hus was brought to the cathedral. While Mass was sung, he was kept waiting outside the door. This over, he was placed in the middle of the aisle on an elevated dais. Around him were placed the various robes needful for celebrating Mass. But before taking his stand on this theater of degradation, Hus knelt down and prayed. The whole council was there, with Sigismund in his robes and diadem on the throne. In the sight of all, Hus stood alone while the Bishop of Lodi, the customary orator on big occasions, preached a short, compendious, and laudable sermon on the danger of heresy and the duty of destroying it. The events of that day, said the preacher, would win for Sigismund immortal glory. He says, O king, a glorious triumph is waiting for you. To thee is due the everlasting crown and a victory to be sung through all time. For thou hast bound up the bleeding church, removed a persistent schism, and uprooted the heretics. Do you not see how long-lasting will be your fame and glory? For what can be more acceptable to God than to uproot a schism and destroy the errors among the flock? Unquote. Ending the quote within a quote. But the day was not altogether without its stings for Sigismund. Hus, when he spoke, was not slow to remind him of his safe conduct. Sigismund, it is said, blushed, an incident denied by some historians with as much warmth as if the blush were as discreditable to Sigismund as his falsehood. Then the representatives of the nations read aloud the record of the trial and the sentences of the council. When Hus attempted to reply and point out certain omitted limitations in his theses, Diali ordered him to be silenced. That's one of the bishops there. You shall answer altogether later. How can I possibly answer altogether, retorted Hus, since I cannot keep them altogether in my mind? Be silent, said Zabarella, another one of his inquisitors. We have heard you quite enough. I beseech you for God's sake, hear me, cried Hus with clasped hands, lest the bystanders believe that I ever held such errors. Afterward do with me as you list." We need not wonder at his indignation when we remember that one of the articles read out against him was that he had said he was the fourth member in the Trinity. When the reading of the tissue of falsehood was completed and the sentence pronounced, Hus knelt once more in prayer. Lord Jesus, pardon all my enemies for thy great mercy's sake, I beseech thee, for thou knowest that they have falsely accused me. Pardon them for thy great mercy's sake. But the bishops who stood near frowned and laughed. After this, he was clad by seven bishops in the full vestments of a celebrant. Once more, the bishops urged him to recant. But Hus turned to the people and cried out, These bishops here urge me to recant. 
I fear to do this, lest I be a liar in the sight of God, and offend against my conscience and God's truth. So he stepped down from the table, and the bishops began the ceremony of degradation. One by one, his vestments were stripped off him. A dispute arose over his tonsure. That's a special priestly hairstyle. Should it be cut with scissors or a razor? See, said Hus, turning to Sigismund, these bishops cannot even agree in their blasphemy. A paper crown a yard high, with three demons painted on it, clawing his soul with their nails, and the word heretic was then fastened on his head. The crown which my Redeemer wore, said Hus, was heavier and more painful than this. We commit thy soul to the devil, sang the priests, as they handed him over to the secular arm. But he, with clasped hands and upturned eyes, I commit it to the most gracious Lord Jesus. By a strange oversight, the council forgot to add the crowning farce of these inquisition courts, the solemn adjuration to the secular arm to shed no blood. Go, take him, said Sigismund, turning to Louis, Count Palatine, the sword-bearer of the emperor, who stood at Sigismund's elbow, holding the golden orb and its cross in his hand. The count handed him over to the magistrates, who stripped him of his gown and hose, and led him out to die, escorted by a thousand armed men. As he passed through the churchyard of the cathedral, who saw a bonfire of his books? He laughed and told the bystanders not to believe the lies circulated about him. The whole city was in the streets as Hus passed through their midst. But when the procession reached the gates, the crowd found that they were forbidden to pass. There were fears lest the drawbridge should break down with their weight. On arriving about noon at the execution ground, familiarly known as the Devil's Place, Hus kneeled and prayed with a joyful countenance. The paper crown fell off, and he smiled. "'Put it on again, wrong way up,' cried the mob, "'that he may be burnt with the devils he has served.' His hands were tied behind his back, and who's fastened to the stake which had been driven into the ground over the spot where a dead mule belonging to one of the cardinals had been recently buried. "'Turn him round towards the west,' cried the crowd. "'He is a heretic, and must not face the east.' This done, a sooty pothook chain was wound round his neck, and two faggots placed under his feet. Bergen Reichentral, the author of the famous illustrated diary, offered to call a priest. There is no need, replied Hus. I have no mortal sin. But a priest who was riding about in a vest of very red silk was less merciful. No confessor must be given him, he cried, for he is a heretic. For the last time, Louis, Count Palatine, and the Marshal of the Empire asked him if he would recant and save his life. Said Hus in a loud voice, God is my witness that the evidence given against me is false. I have never thought nor preached save with the one intention of winning men, if possible, from their sins." In the truth of the gospel I have written, taught, and preached. Today, I will gladly die. 
So they heaped the straw and wood around him and poured pitch upon it. When the flames were lighted, he sang twice with a loud voice, Christ, thou son of the living God, have mercy upon me. When he began the third clause, who was conceived of the Virgin Mary, the wind blew the flames in his face. So, as he was praying, moving his lips and head, he died in the Lord. The beetles piled up the fuel two or three cartloads, then stirred the bones with sticks, split up the skull, and flung it back into the flames, together with his coat and shoes, which the Count Palatine had brought from the executioner, for three times the usual fee, lest the Bohemians should keep them as relics. When the heart was found, they ran a sharp stake through it and set it ablaze. As soon as all was over, the ashes were heaped into a barrow and tilted into the Rhine. Unquote. In addition to getting rid of Jan Hus, the Council of Constance would depose all three popes, and they would appoint a new pope, Martin V. Now, Martin V would not ultimately be appointed until 1417, when Roman Pope Gregory XII had just died. To maintain continuity, Martin would acknowledge all of Gregory's acts as legitimate, and the divide in the Catholic Church, this period known to historians as the Western Schism, had been ended. In that regard, at least, the Council of Constance is a success. Although it never does get around to cleaning up church corruption. Following the execution, some would say the martyrdom of Jan Hus, his followers, now known as Hussites, dominate Bohemian Christianity. This is not just a matter of religion, either. Nationalism comes into play. See, the execution of a Bohemian religious leader at the hands of a German church council during a time of rivalry between, well, the king of Bohemia and the Holy Roman Emperor and rivalry between Germans and Czechs in general, all of this has completely discredited the Catholic hierarchy in the eyes of the Bohemian people. Wenceslas, at this point, is honestly terrified. Uh, he fears to become the target of Europe's next religious war. He tries to crack down on the Hussite movement, but he only succeeds in expelling the most radical leaders from the city of Prague. And they go throughout the country spreading Hussite beliefs. The most radical gather at the highly defensible mountain town of Tabor, and this particular group becomes known as the Taborites. And they are the hardline Hussites. And for the next two years, from 1417 till 1419, Bohemia exists in a state of uneasy separation from the Roman Church. But upon King Wenceslas' death from a heart attack in August 1419, the country would fall into yet another crisis. 
Actually, let's back up a step. Before we talk about the death of King Wenceslas, let's talk about something that happened just 17 days beforehand. This is an event called the First Defenestration of Prague. A couple of things to note here. One, for those listeners who speak English as a second language... Defenestration means throwing out the window. If I defenestrate my laptop, I am throwing my laptop out the window. The second thing to point out is that this is called the first defenestration of Prague. There will, in fact, be three defenestrations of Prague in history. Some point... In the next couple of months, we will be talking in depth about the third defenestration of Prague. But this first defenestration, this first throwing out the window in the city of Prague, is worth looking at as well. See, on July 30th, 1419, a fiery Hussite preacher named Jan Zalivsky, gives a speech outside the old town hall in the city of Prague. Now, we don't know exactly what he says. All of the supposedly historical records are written much later and have significant differences. But whatever Jan Zalewski says gets the crowd fired up. And eventually, Zalewski, along with another Hussite leader named Jan Ziska, leads the crowd into the town hall building. Now, the town councillors are an anti-Hussite group appointed by Wenceslas, and the Hussite mob grabs the town councillors and throws them through the second-story window. This is not a fatal fall, but there are more people waiting outside with clubs to beat them to death. The fact that all of these people in the mob seem to have shown up with table legs or logs or other types of clubs... It seems to indicate that this may have been planned in advance. Now, overthrowing city councillors who have been appointed by the king is an act of rebellion against the king. So when Wenceslas goes hunting outside the city of Prague in early August, he's not just on any old hunting trip. He's keeping his head down and hoping the situation cools off. And then on August 16th, he has a heart attack and dies. And Wenceslas has no children, so his legal heir, his next of kin, is his brother Sigismund. It's the Hungarian king who has been giving us so much trouble throughout this entire story. You might remember that Sigismund is not exactly the most popular guy in Bohemia at the moment. He is, after all, the guy who had Janus executed, and he inherits a country with the capital city already in revolt. 
immediately, Bohemia falls into civil war between Catholics and Hussites. But the vast majority of the populace across all social classes are now Hussites. And these people raid military armories to gather weapons, and they form militias across the country, largely under the leadership of Jan Ziska, who is quickly becoming the de facto Hussite military commander. Throughout the rest of 1419, Ziska leads the militias in a series of successful, small-scale engagements against noblemen loyal to Sigismund. These militias are mostly made up of civilians. These are largely not professional soldiers. There are some, those individuals are usually given leadership positions, these people are mostly civilians. Uh, they mostly use weapons that are easier to use. When you think of militias just a hundred years earlier, you're talking about you know, a bunch of peasants with pitchforks and clubs, for the most part, who are not terribly skilled at fighting. By now, in 1419, these folks are armed with crossbows and most importantly, firearms, weapons which are easy, relatively, for even an untrained person to use. Also, these militias are made up of men and women. They need every person they can get, and you will find women handling the crossbows and firearms right alongside the men. These militias are at a disadvantage because, as I said, they're not professional soldiers. And they fight on the defensive most of the time. And this turns out to be remarkably effective. See, most of the enemies of the Hussite militias are knights. Right? They're professional mounted soldiers and they are heavily armored. They are also faster than you. So what do you do? You get in a defensive position, you get them to come at you, and then when the knights are almost on top of you, you open fire with your early model muskets and blow a hole right through their armor. The... Militias under Jan Ziska make use of war wagons. These are wagons you know, that have been modified with raised sides to provide some level of protection and outfitted basically like a medieval version of a tank. They don't have a cannon on them. They've got a bunch of people with crossbows and muskets. These wagons can be used to block choke points very effectively. You put a couple of these wagons at a river crossing, and even a fairly large 
force of knights is going to have a very difficult time getting across that bridge. But throughout 1419, this is all very small, low-level, localized fighting. The militia of the countryside in this area against the Duke of so-and-so. It's all very minor. But in March of 1420, the conflict heats up a little bit. The new legitimate pope, Martin V, declares a crusade against the Hussites. Sigismund himself leads an army of between 80 and 100,000 troops to the walls of Prague and demands the city's surrender. And the Hussites, under the influence of that fiery preacher Jan Zalewski, answer with four demands which are now known as the Articles of Prague. These demands are, quote, One. The word of God shall be preached and made known in the kingdom of Bohemia freely and in an orderly manner by the priests of the Lord. 2. The sacrament of the Holy Eucharist shall be freely administered in the two kinds, that is, bread and wine, to all the faithful in Christ who are not precluded by mortal sin, according to the word and disposition of our Savior. As an aside, remember this one, we'll be coming back to it. 3. The secular power over riches and worldly goods which the clergy possesses in contradiction to Christ's precept, to the prejudice of its office and to the detriment of the secular arm, shall be taken and withdrawn from it, and the clergy itself shall be brought back to the evangelical rule and an apostolic life such as that which Christ and his apostles led. 4. All mortal sins, and in particular all public and other disorders which are contrary to God's law, shall in every rank of life be duly and judiciously prohibited and destroyed by those whose office it is. Unquote. Sigismund is at first amenable to these demands, but the papal representatives with his army advise him to refuse, and he does. Following that, Sigismund then goes on to lose a series of engagements. At one of these engagements, the Battle of Vitkov Hill, a militia force of less than 150 troops under Jan Zizka defeats 7,000 knights, killing as many as 500 of them while only losing three militia members in the process is an embarrassment for Sigismund and his professional, papally-approved army. By the end of 1420, Sigismund and his loyalists will be entirely driven from the country. Now, there are four more crusades called by the Pope against the Hussites in Bohemia, and collectively, this whole period of conflict is called the Hussite Wars. And these last from about 1420 to 1431. During that time period, Jan Ziska and Jan Zalewski both die, and they are replaced by two radical Taborites. 
Taborites, that hardcore Hussite faction. Uh, these gentlemen are named Prokop the Great and Prokop the Lesser. But in each of these crusades, in each of these Hussite wars, the Hussites beat back their attackers. Now, there are a number of political solutions attempted. Uh, one point, the Hussites even tried to get the king of Poland to become their king, but some Hussite factions don't like that because now there are different Hussite factions and they're in disagreement with each other. By the early 1430s, there are two really important factions. The first is that more radical faction, the uh, Taborites that we already discussed, and the other is the less radical faction uh, who are called the Ultraquists. And in 1433, there is a peace conference between the Hussites, Sigismund, and representatives of the Catholic Church. And to understand how these Hussite wars come to an end, we have to once more go back to theology. See, in traditional Catholic doctrine on the Eucharist, and at the part of the Mass where the priest blesses the bread and wine, the doctrine is that both the bread and the wine contain both the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, if you have one, you have both. And at this time, in Catholicism, the bread only is given to the people. Only the priest actually drinks the wine. And for the Ultraquists, this is a problem. Well, it's a problem for the Taborites, too. See, they think that... Uh, only the body of Christ is in the bread, and only the blood of Christ is in the wine, so that to be a good Christian, you have to have both. Now, there is a little debate over whether or not maybe the wine has some special holiness, that only the priest should be allowed to drink it, but the main concern by the Catholic Church is that when giving little sips to so many people, some of it may be spilled, and after all, this is the blood of Christ, and you've just spilled some on the floor, and it becomes a, uh, a problem, of, uh, at the very least, an issue of decorum. And uh, even so, the Catholic Church delegates at this peace conference, they're willing to concede this point. They are willing to allow the people of Bohemia to have the bread and the wine at Mass. But while this is enough for the Ultraquists, that along with some church reforms, it's not enough for the Taborites. At this point, the Taborites basically want the entire Catholic Church abolished. And so without their agreement, the peace talks fall apart. But a year later, in 1434, civil war breaks out among the Hussites between the Taborites and the Ultraquists, and the Ultraquists, the less radical faction, they come out on top. And Prokop the Great and Prokop the Lesser, the radical Taborite leaders, they are both killed in the same battle. And so, in 1435, the Ultraquists the Pope, and Sigismund all sign a peace agreement. 
And more or less, they affirm the Articles of Prague. There are a few face-saving measures for both sides. For example, the Ultraquists are allowed to receive communion as both bread and wine, but they have to acknowledge that the bread contains the blood and vice versa. And uh, they also have to get rid of their bishop. They have to appoint a new one. But it's basically the Articles of Prague being affirmed. And this new reformed church, this papally approved Hussite church, will be the majority religion in Bohemia. Officially called the Moravian Church, this faith actually survives till today, albeit with not nearly as many members as it once had. The followers of the Moravian Church would be persecuted in the 1600s, and many, many of them would uh, either change religions or die or leave. But to this day, there are still three million members of the Moravian Church worldwide. And every year, on July 6th, the anniversary of Jan Hus's death, Moravian churches sing the following hymn. Quote, For all thy saints, O Lord, who strove in thee to live, who followed thee, obeyed, adored, our grateful hymn receive. For all thy saints, O Lord, accept our thankful cry, who counted thee, their great reward, and strove in thee to die. Unquote. The parallels to Martin Luther are striking. Many of Jan Hus's teachings foreshadow Luther. He teaches a modified version of the doctrine of the Eucharist. He preaches against the selling of indulgences. He says that Scripture, not the Pope, is the ultimate source of Christian doctrine. In his Leipzig Disputation in 1519, Luther would even go so far as to declare, to the shock of a room full of priests and scholars, Ja, ich bin Hussite. Yes, I am a Hussite. There are also lessons to be learned for political leaders as well as religious ones. Many Catholics have criticized Holy Roman Emperor Charles V for granting Martin Luther safe passage to and from the Diet of Worms in 1521. You had him, they say, hypothetically, these hypothetical people. They had him, and you let him go. But Charles V was probably thinking of what happened after Sigismund failed to honor his safe conduct to Jan Hus. But had Charles detained and executed Luther, he wouldn't have ended Lutheranism. He would have created a martyr, just as Sigismund created a martyr when he had Jan Hus burned at the stake. Of course, the Hussite movement deserves some consideration, not just as a foreshadowing of the Reformation, but in its own right. 
this movement would create a uniquely Czech cultural heritage. Prior to this time, as we discussed, there are many German communities in Bohemia, but after, during and after the Hussite Wars, the mostly Catholic Germans would leave the country, making Bohemia ever more Bohemian, ever more Czech. Later on, Bohemia would become ground zero for another religious conflict, the Thirty Years' War. This would occur as a result of the third defenestration of Prague, and it would happen mostly because of Bohemia's history of religious freedom and innovation. The settlement at the end of the Hussite Wars would also temporarily relieve pressure on the church to reform. With a single pope once again in command, Martin V could have become a reformer, but instead he would conveniently put out the fire where it's hottest, in Bohemia. And then he would leave things be, and his successors would continue practices like the selling of indulgences. Less than a century later, this would give us the Protestant Reformation. And that's why it's relevant. Greetings once again, it's Dan, and I'm here to let you know about a few things we're doing to expand the relevant history universe. For one thing, if you had not heard about it yet, we do have a Patreon channel. You can find the link to that in the description, and what this channel offers is exclusive access, yes, exclusive for members only, to a new series called Dan's War College. This is a monthly video series with videos uh, about a half hour long where I myself, Dan Toller, explore and break down military battles or units or tactics from history and explain why they worked or didn't work, as the case may be. You get all of this, as well as a shout-out on the main Relevant History show for $5 a month. Alternatively, if you would like to support the show uh, with a smaller contribution, you can also find a link in the episode description to the Salad Tossers Patreon network. Now, as you might imagine, this is a network of more irreverent creators, and on their channel, I show a little bit more irreverent side. That series is called Irrelevant History, and there we discuss interesting historical novelties, such as the bear that served in the Polish army in World War II. Once again, you can find the link to that in the episode description as well, and that comes at the low, low price of $1 per month. But you don't have to spend money to support the show. As a matter of fact, 
one of the most helpful things you could do is leave a review or a nice positive rating on one of the many podcast distribution services. If you listen on iTunes or Google Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you happen to listen, if you leave a review or a rating, it really does help other people find the show. And while you're at it, make sure to share and tell your friends. If you like it, chances are you know a few other people who will as well. Last but not least, if you want to get a hold of me, whether because I made a mistake or whatever other reason you'd like to get in touch, you can find Relevant History on Twitter at Dan Toller Podcast. That's Dan, T-O-L-E-R Podcast. Or you can find the show on Facebook at Dan Toller. That's Dan.Toller. And it will be the Dan Toller with the Relevant History logo, not one of the individual people profiles out there. Finally, you can send me an email at DanTollerPodcast.com at gmail.com. That's Dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast, at gmail.com. For all other show-related things, including links to my blog posts, which have not been updated in quite some time, well, you can find all of that at dantollerpodcast.com. That's Dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast.com. Thanks for listening.